I'm Greg, for those of you who might not know me, I'm one of the pastors here on the team, and uh, we've just finished uh, uh, the book of 1 Peter, and we're now kind of into a a little season of some individual uh, talks for the next two or three weeks. I think you'll enjoy each one of the uh, upcoming ones. Uh, I believe next week we're going to hear from Steve Bickle. And then James Chaw the week after that, so you don't you won't want to miss either of those times. Um, but I wanted to share with you, uh, um, I think a message that the Lord put on my heart a couple weeks ago, a few weeks ago, um, to address us kind of in this season of transition as we're kind of resetting our thoughts about not only the end of the summer but even this next year. Um, and it's going to be from the Gospel of Luke. And I'm going to be drawing from chapters 14 and 15 from the Gospel of Luke. And so the title of our message today is Fill the Banquet Hall. And we have a slide for that. There we go. Whoop. That's interesting. (laughs) Fill the Banquet Hall. So uh, I want to start off with prayer if you'll join me. Lord, I want to thank you just for your heart for those who are lost. What consumed you, what, what burdened you, what moved you uh, to give your, your only son who would take on human flesh for eternity, who would uh, take the lowest spot, who would be betrayed and hated and despised misunderstood and tortured, rejected by his own people and sometimes by his own family was because of a a great love that you had for your people and a desire to bring glory to Jesus Christ. And so, Lord, today as we look at your heart, I pray that you would help us to see our response to your heart I pray that we have ears to hear and you would move us in this time together as we consider your truth. In Jesus' name, amen. The title for our our sermon today is uh, Fill the Banquet Hall, I think. We've got that back up, do we? Can we back it up? Okay. Uh, Do we have slides? Are we okay? There we go. The master calls his servants to fill his banquet. And I want to start off with, uh, an, the, there's going to be four points to this. Introduction, invitation, illustration, and implication. So the first introduction, we, I want to start back uh, at the beginning of chapter 14 of Luke. And it says this. One Sabbath, when he went to dine at the house of the ruler of the Pharisees, They were watching him carefully. And behold, there was a man before him who had dropsy. And Jesus responded to the lawyers and Pharisees saying, is it lawful to heal on the Sabbath or not? But they remained silent. So Jesus got invited to this, the the ruler of the Pharisees. Uh, But it's clear from the context here that they were not there on friendly basis. Actually, they they invited him in order to trap him to snare him. It says that they were watching him carefully. They were baiting him in this situation. 
uh, because you see already recorded in Luke, there had been at least three other instances, situation where Jesus had violated to them the Sabbath, and he healed people on the Sabbath back in chapter 4, which is not in our notes here, but uh, someone was delivered from demons. Simon Peter's mother was healed in chapter 6. There was a man with a withered hand who was restored. Chapter 13, there was a woman who had been bent over for many, many, many years, and she was healed. And these Pharisees were incensed because they had lots and lots and lots of rules of how not to work on the Sabbath. And in their mind, they, they were furious that he kept doing this. And so he kind of, he, he could see through their sham and what, you know, this invitation that had. And there was this man who had been brought into the situation here, it says, who has dropsy. Now, dropsy was probably an, an organ failure. And so he was re retaining water in his body. And he was probably because his organs had failed, are failing, you know, he wasn't long from death. And so Jesus, knowing their hearts and seeing this man, he, he appealed to them. He says, is it, is it lawful to heal on the Sabbath or not? Now, they didn't want to look, they didn't look, look cruel. In their mind, yeah, you're not supposed to be doing that. But he's going to, the heart of the matter is, look, you're more about keeping this law, about keeping this rule, than showing some mercy in this situation. It says, then he took him and he healed him and sent him away. And he said to them, which of you, having a son or an ox and has fallen into a well on a Sabbath day, will not immediately pull him out? And they could not reply to these things. You see, even the Sabbath, even the, the, the Jewish rules had some uh, leniency if, you're, if your ox fell into a, a pit or you're, you're, something happened to your child, you could pull them out. You could rescue them. And he's like, you know, you're, you think it's okay to take care of an ox, but this man, this person needs some mercy, needs some care. But they could not reply to these things. And it goes on. Now he told a parable to those who were involved when he noticed how they chose the places of honor, saying to them, when you were invited to someone, by someone to a wedding feast, do not sit down in a place of honor, lest someone more distinguished than you be invited by him. And he who invited you both will come and say to you, give your place to this person, and then you will begin with shame to take the lowest place. Back up a little bit, you know, okay, we're at this meal of Pharisees who don't like Jesus. They've come with an intent to trap him. He's already kind of exposed their hearts. Now he kind of is turning on all the rest of the guests there and says, um, hey, when you come to these times, you know, you're all kind of racing for the important seats, you know, in the room, like the ones who, you, who gets close to the front or by, the, by the, the chief, you know, person there so that you look good. You kind of filled in all the spots. And then when somebody more important comes in, what are they going to do with you? They're going to say, hey, you've got to move down to that, the end. And so their whole motive, you know, was to honor themselves. So he reproves their attitudes. And it goes on, verse 10. But when you're invited, go and sit in the lowest place so that when your host comes, he may say to you, 
friend, move up higher. Then you'll be honored in the presence of all who sit at the table. Then verse 11, for everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, and he who humbles himself will be exalted. So now he's kind of stirred the feathers a little bit more, ruffled some feathers again, and you know, now he's rebuking everybody in the room, and now he turns back to the one who invited him, and he says this, verse 12, and he also said to the man who invited him, when you give a dinner or a banquet, do not invite your friends or your brothers or your relatives or your rich neighbors, lest they also invite you to return and, be, and you be repaid. So he's now saying, look, you know, there's no charity in this kind of, you know, gathering. When you just invite, you know, your family. You can't, you can't think of yourself as being hospitable and really generous person. When the people that you invite, you know, it's your family members or the rich people who you know they're going to invite you back to their house. Verse 13, but when you give a feast, invite the poor, the crippled, the lame, and the blind, and you'll be blessed because they cannot repay you, for you will be repaid at the resurrection of the just. He said, look, if, if you really want to do something charitable or good or kind, it's not about inviting your family. Now, you know, when he says don't invite your family, you know, your relatives and your rich neighbors, you know, he's using a kind of a Semitic language hyperbole, you know, to make the point, to make the emphasis. Look, it's not about you inviting people who love you or can give to you, but it's about what are you doing to, to bless those, to care for those who can't pay you back? And how much of the things that we do, you know, if we really looked at it, how much of them are, are for our good? So you can imagine, you know, these first few minutes of the dinner, it's kind of awkward, like you're thinking, this is really awkward. You know, what are we going to do the rest of the night with Jesus? Just hear him kind of correct us and reprove us and tell us, you know, all the things we're, we're, we don't, we don't, we're not doing right or something like that. And the host has been corrected and he's talked about our pride. And, you know, he went ahead and did the healing and all those things like that. And so in verse 15, it says, Then one of those who reclined at table with him heard these things and said, uh, Blessed is everyone who will eat in the kingdom of God. I mean, it's like all the commentators said, this is like an idiotic statement at this point. You know, like, what does this mean? I think he's just trying to cut through the tension in the room. So he throws out this kind of pious sounding mumbo jumbo, which really means blessed are us Jews when we get to be in the kingdom of God together. And so Jesus kind of took that thought, who's gonna be blessed in, the, in this feast of the kingdom of God? And that's where it kind of sets up our invitation. So in verse 16, it says, But he said to him, A man once came to a great banquet and invited many. And at the time for the banquet, he sent his servant to say to those who had invited, Come, for everything is now ready. So the way that the Jewish culture worked is, you know, these, these weddings are not short events, you know, not a few hours. I mean, a wedding was usually like a week long. And so there were two invitations that were sent out. You sent out the first invitation to invite your family or you, this couple or whomever, you know, to this wedding. And they would tell you approximately when this period of time, when it was going to be. 
And, you know, that was a great honor. It was a great blessing to be at that. And so you would say, yeah, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to come. Or you would, if you didn't respond, they were assuming you were going to come. And then when the time came and they, they had already prepared the meal and the feast was ready and everything was out, they sent out the servant again and said, hey, it's time. Come on in. Come on into the, to the wedding feast. And really, if we were to think through what this text is about here, he's talking to the Jews. You know, you Pharisees, you've had, you've had the Old Testament prophecies all these years, and you knew that there was a feast coming. You knew that Messiah was coming, and you were invited, and you should be, and you should be expecting, anticipated. And so he says, verse 18, but they all alike began to make excuses. The first said to him, I bought a field and I must go out and see it. Please have me excused. Now, so it says that they, they're making these excuses, which really smacks of uh, insecure, insincerity on these people's parts. Because again, given the context, we know that they knew something was coming. But this first one here, he says, you know, I bought a field and I must go, see, I must go out and see it. Now, who, who buys a field and has to go out right away to go see it? If you already bought, number one, you probably, if before you buy it, you go out to see it. You've already gone out to look at that field before you decide if you want to pay for it or not. But even if you did buy it without looking at it, why now? Why do you have to not come to the, to the, the wedding, to the banquet, you know, because you've got to go see it now? So you see the, the excuse, the insincerity there. And then verse 19, and another said, I bought five yoke of oxen, and I, and I go to examine them. Please have me excused. Same thing. You know, here you have someone who's, who's got this business situation. He's already bought the oxen, and he feels like now I need to go examine them. Instead of realizing you would always, you know, go check those oxen out well before you buy them. And even if you bought them, they're already yours. You could check them out in a week or several days from now. Verse 20, another said, I have married a wife, therefore I cannot come. He was probably referring back to the, the Deuteronomy where, uh, uh, where actually you, if you got married, you had a year that you didn't have to go into the military service, some kind of the business dealings. You know, you were kind of excused from those things. But if you're wife, you've just been married to a wife and you've already been with her, you know, I'm sure she's happy to get out and be with some people for a while. <laughs> but affections, possessions, things of this life are the excuse. Can't come. Can't come now. Please excuse me. It goes on, so the servant came and reported these things to the master. Then the master of the house became angry. The master became angry. Now, Jesus chose this word, so it's, it, to me, I, he doesn't say exactly where that anger came from. I mean, a few ideas to me, you know, as I think about that, is, you know, uh, what a dishonor you've just made. You never told me you weren't coming when you, could have come, when you could have told me when I sent out the invitations. 
And so you're all just kind of making your excuses. He could be, he could be angry with kind of a, a jealousy. I prepared this for you. You could, have, you could have been in my banquet. You could have been in my kingdom. And you're, you have no appetite for, for me. You have no appetite to be with me. You have no desire to be with me. You'd rather be with your business. You'd rather be with your possessions. You'd rather be with your wife. You'd rather be all of these things. That's what your heart's desire is. And so you don't, you don't have a taste for and a desire to be with me. The Jews, especially the, these religious leaders, you know, had known ahead of time, and they were unwilling to come. And so he's angry because his, his, his banquet hall is empty. Could we have that? Got this gorgeous banquet hall ready, and they didn't come. Now, obviously, I don't know what the banquet hall looks like. But he was re ready to lavish his goods, his fellowship, himself on them. And ultimately, as we know, this is really about the kingdom. Remember the guy who said, how blessed are those who, are in the, who, you know, eat, who feast in the kingdom? They didn't want this. So it goes on. Verse 21 it says, I'll read this again. So the servant came and reported these things to the master. The master of the house became angry and said to his servant, go out quickly to the streets and the lanes of the city and bring in the poor and crippled and blind and lame. There was an urgency. I want to film, I want to fill up my banquet hall. So he's telling his servants, go on out. I want you to bring in the people who are considered crippled, poor, blind, and lame. Now, these would be unclean people. As far as, the Phil, uh, as far as the Pharisees are concerned, these are the people that we don't associate with. They will defile us, many of them. We don't want to be with these people. And so the tax gatherers, the needy, the prostitutes, the crippled, the unwanted people is what he said to his servants. I want you to go out quickly and I want you to bring those people in. And then in verse 22 it says, and the servant says, sir, what you've commanded be done, what you commanded has been done and there's still room. So a lot of those people came in, but many of them say, nope, I don't want that either. I don't want to be in your banquet. I don't want to be in your kingdom. And so we still got an empty I figured there's going to be a lot, a lot of room in this banquet, so there's all kinds of different rooms to be into. There's a whole other room that hasn't been filled yet. Still, there still is room in verse 23. And the master said to the servant, go out to the highways and the hedges and compel the people to come into my house, that my house may be filled. So now he's sending them back out again, the servants. And they, they went out and they brought in the, you know, the tax gatherers and the sinners. And now he says, I want you to go out and I want you to scour the area, the highways, the hedges, and compel people. I want you not to force them physically, but I want you to persuade them. And most commentators think here, this is foreshadowing him bringing in the Gentiles. 
I want to fill up my house, so let's, we've already got all the Jews that want to come. We've got the sinful Jews that, that would come. And now we're going to go out for the Gentiles. Bring those people in. Romans 11 says that uh, the rejection by the Jews was what set up the salvation for us Gentiles. And in the, in the last days, it will be their jealousy that will bring them back to their Messiah, and they'll be, they'll be saved. So what are we to make of this? I mean, following this section, there's actually a cost that's described of discipleship, how we need to, if we're, gonna, if we're really going to be a follower of, of Christ, how we need to deny ourselves and we need to, to, to follow him supremely and love him supremely. But just after that, we have a very familiar section, Luke 15, where Jesus is doing exactly what he told the Pharisees to do. So it starts off in Luke 15, verse 1. It says, Now the tax collectors and the sinners were all drawing near to him. And the Pharisees and the scribes grumbling said, This man receives sinners and eats with them. This is exactly what he told them about this parable. Look, if you're not going to come, I'm going to go out and bring those people in. I'm going to spend time with them. And so what he told them are these three familiar parables where the owner had something, but he lost one of them, and he desperately wanted, or she desperately wanted, to, to have that again, and went on a rescue mission, and rescued that one, and then celebrated that one. So very quickly, since we're pretty familiar with these, Verse 3, it says, so he told them this parable. What man of you having a hundred sheep, if he lost one of them, does not leave the ninety-nine in the open country and go after the one that is, who's, that is lost until he finds it? And when he has found it, he lays it on his shoulder, rejoicing. And when he comes home, he calls together his friends and his neighbors, and he says to them, rejoice with me. For I found my sheep that was lost. He had a hundred sheep and he left 99 in the open field, which I think is, sounds pretty vulnerable to me, to go find the one. When he finds it, he carries it back. And he gathers all his friends because he's so happy. He says, rejoice with me. Celebrate with me. Verse 7, just so. I tell you, there will be more joy in heaven over one sinner who repents than over 99 righteous persons who need no repentance. I, I don't know if that weighs on you. Because I don't know, I guess, I guess over time you get kind of dull to that. But do you see who he's talking about? There's more joy in heaven over one sinner who repents than the 99 who don't need any repentance. I mean, I think he... Gets excited over the 99. I think he loves the 99. I think, but it says there's more joy going on in heaven when that one is, is captured, is returned, is rescued. And then it goes on. Or what woman, having 10 silver coins, if she loses one coin, does not light a lamp 
and sweep the house and seek half-heartedly, seek diligently until she finds it. And when she has found it, she calls together her friends and neighbors saying, rejoice with me, for I found the coin that I lost. Just so. There will be more, there will be, there is, excuse me, just so I tell you, there is joy before the angels of God over one sinner who repents. Now, I used to always read that pretty quickly and I'd say there's, the angels are, are rejoicing now that you got saved, you know, and we all be kind of excited about angels rejoicing. But that's not what it says here. It says, there is joy before the angels of, of, of God over one sinner who repents. Who do you think is the one the angels are, are watching? God. The angels are watching how happy, how excited God is when she gets that one back. Verse 11. And they said, and he said, there was a man who had two sons. The younger of them said to his father, Father, give me the share of property that is coming to me. And he divided his property between them. And not many days later, the younger son gathered all he had and took a journey into a far country. And there he squandered his property and reckless living. So basically the son said, Dad, you know, I know I'm supposed to get this money, you know, when you die. I should get my inheritance at that time, but you know, I want it now. Unless you want to die now, but I want, I want the money. I want, to, I want the money now. And his father gave that to him. And then he took that, went off to a distant land, and he wasted, he squandered it, spent it all. And I didn't put all the verses in it, but you know, you see the plight that happened to him, how he just wasted on prostitutes and reckless living and just totally humiliated his father and his reputation. I'm sure his word came back. In verse 20, after he was starving, after he'd been feeding pigs and eating what the pigs eat, he finally figured out, this is not too good of a situation. I, I, I think I can go back and see if I can get a job with my dad at least because they got better food than I'm getting. In verse 20, and he rose and came to his father. But while he was still a long way off, his father saw him. You know, that, that father was looking for his son all that time. He didn't go chase after him, but he was watching for him. He was watching for him. And it says, while his son was still a long way off, the father saw him and felt compassion and ran and embraced him and kissed him. And the son started his, you know, apology and the father just broke it off, broke off the apology and said, bring quickly the best robe and put it on him. Put a ring on his hand, shoes on his feet and bring the fatted calf and kill it and let us eat and celebrate. For this son was dead He's alive again. He was lost and is found. And they began to celebrate. If we continue that story, we find out that the older brother, who's, who's really the Pharisees, they were going to have no part of that. They're not going to be celebrating any lost person coming back. They're just thinking about how it, how it affects their bottom line. What was taken from him. 
they begin to celebrate. So what are the, impl the implications of this? Well, the first is that no one's going to fool a master. Nobody's going to fool God in that day, you know. You know, the, the, the Pharisees were acting, you know, one way, like they were being hospitable and things like that. But Jesus knew their hearts. Jesus knew the hearts of the people and why they were there and what they were thinking about and their own motives and their own, you know, he, he understood when he gave the various excuses that people, he, he understood that people love things. They love this life. They love their possessions. They love their relationships. They have that as their love. He understood that the Jews who had the promises of God, and even though they went through the, the outward form of attending religious activities together, being a part of the, of, the, of the Jewish services and so forth, he knew. He knew their heart. And he knows our hearts. He knows. The word, the word has gone out for the invitation. The invitation is, has been sent out. There's a, there's a banquet. The Bible even gives a, a, a clarity on it in, in Revelation. There's a, there's a marriage supper of the Lamb. There's a banquet that's coming. And there are some, probably even in this room, who kind of like those first inv invites, you know, like, yeah, I think I'm going to go to that. But really, the time will come when they'll stand before him and he'll say, you don't, have any part in this, you don't have any part in this kingdom. And they'll say, well, Lord, didn't I do all these things in your name? Didn't I come? And he'll say to them, depart from me. I never knew you. I never knew you. But to those who receive the invitation and believe, they'll be welcomed in. Faith receives and accepts the invitation to this banquet. You, you, can, you, can, you can do the same thing that Christian, Christians do. You can sing the same songs that they sing. You can be in the same Sunday schools that they're in, same youth group that they're in. You can attend, do all those things, but the time will come that it'll be shown whether you actually have put your hope and faith in Jesus Christ. Because faith is not works, but, but faith has works. You don't work your way into the kingdom of God. But if you, if you say you believe and you have no works, if, you don't, if your life doesn't demonstrate that you're really loving God and looking forward to God and wanting God, if you're, if you, you should be warned. You should be concerned. Parent, you should be concerned that just going through motions is not, is not, it's not going to get you into the banquet. And the implication is that our master's passion and joy is in saving the lost. I mean, I, I, am, I am so nowhere near, nowhere close, and I, and I you know, a lot of my responsibilities on the pastoral team is the outreach and evangelism. Missions. And I look at this heart that, that the father had for that lost son or that woman had for finding that coin or the, sh the shepherd for the sheep. 
If I look how quickly Jesus was sending people out, I want you to fill this house. Go out and bring in those prostitutes you saw over there. You know, there's some lame people. I think, I think we passed them on the way in. Let's, let's talk to those people. You know, let's ask those people. Let's go in. That person, Zacchaeus, that guy that nobody likes him, nobody talks to him, that little short guy, let's invite him in. Who are the unpopular people around you? Who are the people whose lives kind of make you uncomfortable? Who are, who are the people who would be like looked down on in your class or on your bus or on your sports team, in your club, in your neighborhood? You just wish those people would go away. Just don't want to think about those people. But the banquet hall is still empty. It's still empty. And who are the people who, you know, can't speak our language and who are just trying to get by from other countries and other religions? And we excuse ourselves. I don't have time for that because I got to go do this important business thing with my family or whatever. It's awkward. It's difficult. And yet... Jesus is sending out servants. Bring those people in. My, my hall is not filled up yet. It's not filled. And I get joy when, that, when those people come in. Those are the people that Jesus is hanging with. Those are the people that Jesus have meals with. Those are the people that, that have got his attention. When those who he's given his attention to say, ah, it's not now. I'm not... That's busy. Sometimes we spend, and we shouldn't give up on those people, but I don't know that all our attention needs to be waiting for someone who's turning a hard heart, a cold shoulder, to the invitation from Jesus. And the question is, will you leave the work to other people? Will you leave the work to other people? I want to I read to you a, a I, and I adapted a, another parable called the parable of the orange tree. And I, I adjusted it a little bit. It was by Dr. John White. So I want to read it to you. He says, I was driving on a Florida road, still and straight and empty. On either side were groves of orange trees. Line after line of trees stretched endlessly from the road, their boughs heavy with fruit, this was harvest time. I realized that for all the hours I had driven, I had not seen any other person. The groves were empty of people. But at last, I saw some orange pickers. And far from the highway, almost on the horizon, they seemed lost in the vast wilderness of unpicked fruit. Many miles later, I saw another group of pickers. Finally, after what seemed like hours of driving, when the sun's shadows were lengthening, I turned a corner to see a sign that said, leaving neglected county, entering home county. The contrast was so startling that I hardly had time to read the sign. All at once, traffic was heavy. People were out there swarming around, crowding the sidewalks. There was a, a change in this county. There were still trees in abundance, but now far from empty, this county was filled with laughter and singing and multitudes of people. I parked the car on the side of the road and mingled with the crowd. Everyone seemed to be so carefree and joyful. Is this a holiday, I asked? What's happening? 
You're a stranger, aren't you? A woman answered. This is Orange Day. She must have seen the puzzled look on my face because she went on. It's so good to turn aside from our busy lives and pick oranges one day a week. Then I asked, but don't you pick oranges every day? You could pick oranges at any time, she said. Frankly, we should always be ready to pick oranges. But Orange Day is a day we devote especially to orange picking. As I made my way toward the trees, I noticed people carrying a book. It was titled, Orange Picker's Manual. I saw a group of people sitting in chairs around an orange tree. I decided to sit with them. Around the foot of the tree, someone was addressing all the people. And they all rose together to sing songs of the orange groves. We sang for some time, and then I grew kind of puzzled. When do we start to pick oranges, I asked. It's not long now, they told me. After a while, a man with a well-used copy of the Orange Picker's Manual began to talk. And he talked, and I looked away, and I noticed actually after he was talking for so long, I noticed there was other groups around other trees being addressed by men with manuals. Some trees had no one sitting around them at all. Which trees do we pick from, I asked. This is our tree, he said, pointing to the one that we'd gathered around. But there are more people in our circle than oranges on that tree. The man said, well, we don't pick the oranges. We haven't been trained. That's what the head orange picker's job is. He's been to college. Most of us have never been to manual school. I say, I have no idea that pick, I didn't know that picking oranges was so difficult. Just then, at the climax of the speaker's talk, with a very dramatic gesture, he reached up for two of the oranges, plucked them from the branch, and placed them in a basket at his feet. The applause was deafening. Do we start picking now, I asked. What in the world are you doing? What are you talking about, said the, the man. I said, I'm, trying to, I'm not trying to be critical. I'm sure that the man is very good, but surely the rest of us can try. After all, there's so many oranges that need picking, and we all have a pair of hands, and we can read the manual. When you've been around as long as I have, you'll realize it's not as simple as that, he said. And there isn't time for one thing. We have our work to do, our families to care for, and our homes to look after. He kept on explaining his excuses, but I just stopped listening. Whatever these people were, they were not orange pickers. I tried one or two of the other groups around the trees. Somehow it had classes, but most people did not pick oranges. I tried to tell them of the trees that I had seen in neglected county, but they seemed to have little interest. We haven't picked the oranges here yet, they, they say in reply. I felt there was something sad about it all as I thought about these people in home county. But then I awakened and I realized it was just a dream. We have such an opportunity. <laughs> and our Savior, our God, has such joy in heaven. When one person, when one person comes to know him. So what, what will you do? What will I do? I mean, I, I think I just feel like, Lord, how do I, how do I, how do I get there? In a few moments, we're going to be taking communion together. So if the worship team will come. I, I think that
The Lord's Supper should fuel our gratitude, should fuel our excitement, should fuel our passion for loved ones and neighbors and crippled people and people who are handicapped in various other ways and people who are suffering all around us and people who've never heard, people who will spend eternity either in heaven, in the kingdom of God, at his banquet table, or separated from him. And while I believe that God will, his hand's not so short that he can't save, I think that he lets us know this is what gives me joy. This is what fuels my passion. And I think that our communion should fuel our gratitude and gratefulness, our awareness of what he has done for us. But I'm also soul-searching, and I think, I think you should be as well. Like, why don't I care? Why is it such a low priority? Why, are, why am I so blind to those around me when, when really the Father's heart is so, so much for lost people? And so I'm praying... And I, I hope you'll join me in prayer that God will transform hearts, all of our hearts, because we as a church are asking God to raise up hundreds, hundreds of ambassadors, hundreds of ambassadors. I asked, I asked specifically today when we sent those college people back to college, I said, they're on mission field. They're, they're on mission field. And it's a tough field that they're going into. It's a tough place. There is a lot of warfare there. And we're not just praying for their protection. We're praying for their boldness. We are, I'm praying for us as a congregation this year as we learn more about the Holy Spirit that we will be filled with boldness. And Jesus told his disciples, you're going to receive power when the Holy Spirit comes on you and you will be my witnesses. And so I think sometimes you experience that boldness when you step out. But let me assure you that his promise in Philippians 2, verse 13, says that God's in you to give you the desire and the power to live like this. He's in you to will and to work for his good pleasure. There's going to be training this year. I hope you'll take part in it. There's going to be mission trips. I hope you'll take part in them. There's going to be outreach events through your youth ministry, women's ministry, and so forth. I, I hope that you'll take opportunity with that. I hope that, you know, you, God will be growing in you like he grows in me. I desire as I, as I pass people in my neighborhood, I think, Lord, save that person. Give me an opportunity to talk to that person. Because how will they believe unless they hear? How will they believe unless they hear? There's, there's another picture we have. I don't, I don't know what the banquet table is going to look like. But there's coming a time when the last seat is going to be full. And there's not going to be any more seats. And then it's going to all be done. It'll all be done. And night's coming when that can't, we can't work anymore. But today's a day of salvation. Today is a day for people to believe. Today is a day to find someone who's lost and help them to find a savior who died for them.
you have some uh, communion elements here with you. Lord, you were the highest. You had the most prestige. You had power. You had beings, celestial beings, ministering to you. And you humbled yourself. And you took the lowest place here on the earth. You made yourself nothing and you emptied yourself so that we could join you in the kingdom. So that we could come to that feast. Thank you, Jesus, for your sacrifice. If there's anyone here who's put their hope in Jesus Christ and trusting him for salvation, I want to invite you to join us in this breaking of bread as we take the bread and the cup together. If you've, if you've not yet made that decision, that's fine. I'm glad you're here. I'm glad you get to hear about Jesus. You can just wait on that. Just think about what we've talked about, how Jesus came to die for you, to pay for your sin, to make a way for you to have eternal life with him. So, Lord, thank you for this bread. We ask you to remind us once again. We remember that you gave your body for us. Thank you also for shedding your blood for us. You said without the shedding of blood, there's no forgiveness. And our, 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 our forgiveness was not purchased with money or silver or gold or lamb's blood, but it was purchased by the precious, holy, only Son of God. Thank you for shedding your blood and pain for our sins. We remember you as we take this cup.